Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. This is a special edition of the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. Today we'll be speaking with Anthony Cheney, who teaches history and writing at the University of North Texas at Dallas. His book, Runaway, Gregory Bateson, The Double Bind and the Rise of Ecological Consciousness, published by the University of North Carolina Press, is a topic of this show. Cheney offers an examination of the intellectual life and ideas of Gregory Bateson that came to fruition in the midst of the social upheaval of the 1960s. Bateson trained in the natural sciences and anthropology, moved to the field of psychiatry, and conceptualized a double-bind theory of schizophrenia. Leading a research group of scientists and captivated by the possibilities a double-bind theory offered in understanding the anxiety of the age, he sought to connect it with other intellectual currents, such as cybernetics, game theory, evolutionary, and communication theory. Working across disciplines, he addressed the modern problem of the distinction between fact-value, reason-emotion, nature-culture, producing an inescapable double-bind for society. Plunging into the paradox of the human condition, he challenged the instrumental view of solving social problems, breaking new ground against binary thinking, and in addressing the ecological crisis as a system in runaway. Without appealing to metaphysics, he articulated a holistic theory of mind as a new foundation for thinking about humanity and its relationship to the natural world. Cheney has provided us a rich exploration of a fascinating thinker who set the foundations for the information age. Here is my conversation with Anthony Cheney. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. I'm a sh- I've got to share with the audience that we were graduate school classmates, yes. and so I'm really excited about your book because it feels like it was my book also, mm-hmm. but you're the author. So, yeah, yeah, um, I, yeah, I feel like it's partly your book too. Okay. So, part of, so today we're going to talk about it, but before we get into the book, there's so much to talk about. It's a, it's, there's a lot of ideas. It's packed. Tell the audience something about yourself and why and how you came to write Runaway. Um, Well, I think I had some version of uh, the book or some idea that I would write a book, something like that, in my mind for a long time. Uh, I first came across Gregory Bateson in my 20s. I was you know, in a situation where I had a lot of time to read and I was just always looking for books. And I happened to come upon a book uh, called uh, The Culture of Narcissism by Christopher Lash. I didn't know who he was. The, the title seemed intriguing. I read that and I'd never read what turned out to be a, an intellectual history, a history of ideas like that, that you know, explained uh, history in a way that drew on all kinds of uh, uh, materials, historical, literature, movies. It just 
brought everything into one and spoke to the present moment. I was I, I really loved reading it. I followed that up with his next book, which was called um, The Minimal Self. And at the end of that book, he discusses Gregory Bateson. I think that may be the first time that I came across that name. Um, and he discusses him in a very critical way, I think. He, but he, he puts his ideas out there. And even though Lash was critical of Bateson, I thought, you know, this, this sounds interesting. So I tracked down a book by Gregory Bateson. I can't remember now which one it was, but I was uh, very intrigued by those ideas. Uh, it, it, you know, he was, he was speaking about, uh, he was speaking, of, he, was, he was giving a, an account of reality that seemed to be very accurate to me. Uh, and, and, and it felt accurate. And uh, it really, really hit me hard, and I started reading it, and um, that was the beginning. Okay, Gregory Bateson. I have to say, I had not heard of him until you mentioned it to me. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't know who he is, have no idea who this man is. He's kind of got lost in history. Can you talk, tell us a little, just a little bit about who he was early on, his, you know, his background? Sure. Well, you know, he was born in 1904. He, he died in 1980. So he, he kind of covers a, a good deal of the 20th century and is involved in a lot of the events of the 20th century. He's born in Britain. He, he's raised by William Bateson, who is the uh, British biologist, naturalist, who introduced the ideas of Mendel uh, to uh, British science and coined the term genetics and pioneered the field of genetics. Bateson is raised to, to look at nature through a kind of natural history uh, perspective in the British tradition. Uh, he doesn't go into biology. He goes into anthropology. He's trained in anthropology uh, when it's a it's a an emerging field. Um, he does his field work in New Guinea uh, and meets Margaret Mead, who's doing field work with her then husband. Uh, they wind up falling in love and getting married. He's married to Margaret Mead in the 30s. They do some very significant anthropological work in Bali in the 30s. Then the war comes. Uh, he's, he's involved with the OSS uh, in the war, uh, in the Asian theater. Uh, comes out of the war, uh, like a lot of people, um, very disillusioned. Kind of regretting some of the ways he had applied science to the war effort. Uh, his marriage to Meade sort of falls apart at that time. He moves to California. Uh, but a big piece I've left out is he's involved in the Macy Conferences on Cybernetics, and that's a, that's a huge part of this. Uh, we'll probably come back to that, right? Yeah, we're going to come back to that in a little bit. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about his early intellectual formation. Okay. He had he collaborated with Margaret Mead, but there was a falling out with her, not just their marriage, but there was an intellectual falling out. Uh, yeah, I, you know, it, it wasn't so much a, 
a falling out, I think, over ideas. I think it was more a falling out over uh, application of ideas. Um, you know, with the, with the end of the war, uh, we have, uh, you know, the United States being the supreme power and entering into their uh, ideological battle with the Soviet Union. And the United States is opening up its doors to social scientists and bringing them into the uh, so-called liberal consensus. And Meade is in a position at that point to really take a role as a leader and to, uh, to use anthropology uh, to promote the idea of freedom and world peace and to apply the ideas of anthropology to big uh, structures of society in order to do good. And um, Bateson is in a place in his mind where he's just, he doesn't believe in the possibility. Maybe not the possibility is the right word, but he doesn't believe uh, that the role of science is to make those kinds of applications. And if you do that, if you apply your science, then you're taking it down a road that's going to corrupt it in some way, and he just doesn't—he he doesn't want to go through the same doors that Mead goes. Now, Bateson, you've just told us he's a scientist. He's the son of a scientist, and he was uncomfortable with the way modern science was conducted. He became very uncomfortable with the instrumental way of approaching human problems. So, why—why why is that? It's. He didn't just come up with that. There was already a tension in modernity between science and other forms of thinking. Can you talk a little bit about that? Between science and, well, you know, he, I, don't, I don't know how far I want to get into this. Well, there's the materialistic view and the romantic view. Sure, uh, and, sure. And the, the, the debates within Darwinism. Right. I think the, the really the important point to start here in this is that even though he doesn't really realize it at the time, what he's working on is really a kind of a new orientation to the life sciences. Uh, he calls it a, a new sort of epistemology, and it's one that brings the concept of information uh, to the life sciences and makes information the central concept to the life sciences rather than force, which is sort of based on the old Newtonian uh, physics, the physics of Isaac Newton from the early modern period. Uh, a lot of the thinking in science was based on uh, Newton's ideas of force, impact, cause and effect along a, uh, a linear time axis, and Bateson, drawing on the ideas of the Macy Conferences, which is, which is the series of conferences that followed World War II, uh, that lays down the foundation of the information age, is taking information and information running around a circuit. That is the, that becomes the basis of causality and, uh, in, in, uh, living organisms and in in the life sciences, and Bateson wants to take that concept and make it central to the life sciences, and that's really his, his lifelong project. Okay, because the 
the conflict within Darwinism was, uh, I think his father was pushing against the idea that it's all deterministic, you know, this leads to, evolves into this or this, and they wanted to put it, he's wanting to put in some communication aspects into how uh, organisms develop and change. Yes, I, I think that, you know, just to put it, to put it in a oversimplified way, Gregory Bates' father, uh, W.B. Bateson, pushes against seeing natural selection and the, the process of evolution is strictly mechanistic. Uh, he's, there are problems that come with that view and he becomes, not a, I mean, a, a critic of Darwinism, not that it, not that in he's arguing against it, but he wants to try to, um, to criticize it and, and improve uh, the theory. Improve the theory. Good. Thank you. And, uh, but because, because, uh, Bateson's father hasn't reached the time in history where the ideas of the information age are really becoming to, uh, come into fruition, he's not really able to, uh, find a way to talk about what he wants to talk about, but his son, Gregory Bateson is. And he wasn't a vitalist. He was going no. against the, there was the vitalist view of, of evolution. Right. Uh, the idea of the life force. But again, that, that, uh, that leans heavily and uses heavily the force metaphor, uh, which would be a kind of Newtonian view, uh, a more mechanistic view. And we're, uh, Bateson and the people who, who he's working with are searching with a new way to, to, Think about uh, causality with not material force as the central cause, but uh, information. Okay. Now, the Macy conferences on cybernetics are, are throughout your book come up as a point where Gregory Bateson begins to, it's like the, the laboratory where he begins to think about how do I take this and how does this apply to bio, the biological sciences? Can you talk about the Macy conferences on cybernetics? What is cybernetics? It sounds kind of new agey to me, but I know it's not. But yeah, well, they didn't really have a good word for what they were talking about. Uh, Who were these people? I got together. Well, they were first of all the Macy conferences on cybernetics were a series of conferences that begin right after World War II and go through the early fifties. Uh, the significant figures included. John von Neumann uh, and uh, Norbert uh, Wiener, two incredible mathematicians, and there were anthropologists involved, there were uh, philosophers involved, there were engineers involved, uh, and they are really trying to hash out the ideas of information theory, communication theory, and part of this becomes cybernetics, which is exploring the uh, interface between living systems and mechanical systems that that are governed by information. Okay. Now, out of this, now this is a real interesting twist in your book. We're going from cybernetics, communication, and all of a sudden we're talking about, also talking about the double bind and schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in our minds, what does psychiatry have to do with 
cybernetics, right? right? But right. you do bring those things together. So let's talk about the central idea of your book, which is this double bind theory that he was developing over time. Okay. Uh, so where did it come from? Right. How is it related to schizophrenia? Because it just, right. it's kind of odd. Right. Well, how did he get it? How did he get involved in psychiatry? All of a sudden, he's an anthropologist, right? And all of a sudden, he's doing psychiatric sort of things. Well, it's all part of his project to take the ideas of the Macy conferences on cybernetics and apply them to a, a kind of uh, to the life sciences through the way that he knows how, which is through a kind of natural history observation method. Uh, he he applies for a grant to study paradox in communication. And he puts together a team to do that, later called the double bind team. And they're studying paradox in communication uh, in a variety of, of areas of life that include um, schizophrenic families, uh, because he's based at the VA hospital in Palo Alto. And there's a, there's a, uh, a content of inquiry. And the double bind becomes a way to think about schizophrenia as not a disease that's, that is born of some chemical problem within the body, but is the result of a pattern of pathological communication in a relational field uh, between a group of people who are who live together like a family and so the double bind is a is a way to think about how did uh, families with uh, schizophrenic members come to be the way they are what is what is happening in their communication and the double bind is uh, the concept that he came up with to explain that pattern of communication. Now, though, it's really interesting about that. I love this section where you have the, uh, this group looking at films of group therapy sessions, family therapy, yes. which is the beginning of family therapy. Right. And they're observing hours and hours of these therapy and seeing how, how the parents, the children, everybody, and, and the therapists are interacting with each other, and they're looking for patterns. Right. And it's just, at, at that point, I thought it became too big for them to process because there are hours and hours of stuff, and they would spend hours just on one little segment of it, mm -hmm. which I thought about, oh, if they had big data, <laughs> they could have figured this out. Yeah. Okay, so t tell me about uh, the point of that study, and uh, what was the problem with the study for Bateson? That kind of that yeah, kind of right. sitting there looking right. at films for hours and hours. Yeah. Uh, well, they had been making films of families uh, who had children who had been identified with uh, schizophrenic symptoms, and they had been making films of these families because because they're trying to document in some way, or part of the team is anyway, to document in some way double bind interactions. And uh, so they've got all this film they've been taking. An old friend of Bateson comes to uh, Stanford to, to do a study. Her name is Frida Fromm Reichman. 
uh, and she is wanting to investigate body language uh, because she feels like um, that is, you know, she's very well known for being intuitive to read psychologies of patients, and she thinks that she may be reading body language, so she wants to study body language, and she's looking for uh, uh, content she could look at, and Bateson says, we have all these films, let's watch these films. Maybe that will give you the observations that you need. So they form a team, they get together in a room, and they start watching these t these films. But there's just so much going on. There's so much data uh, that it becomes um, too, really too much, too, too difficult to, to tease out what's going on. And so Bateson sort of turns away from that, and he wants to find something to observe that's a little bit less full of information. And so he starts, uh, he, he sort of returns to a, a natural history uh, mode from his youth, and he starts observing octopi and how they communicate. And then later that, of course, becomes dolphins. Those dolphins. But the thing about the schizophrenia that in your book it becomes a metaphor for a whole range of social and human problems, right? It's not only a mental disorder, a family system disorder becomes a, it becomes a like a trope for the age, age of anxiety that you talk about. It sort of describes and uh, also offers maybe a a gateway to liberation if we can figure out what is going on in this communication, not only in the individual but in society. Maybe we can solve some of our human problems. Can you make that connection? Well, the society being schizophrenic. Right. Well, I think we're really getting to what I'm trying to do in the book here. If I really think about what this what this book is about, uh, I think it's a sort of a cultural history of this double bind concept. Uh, and what I want to do is. You know, when you understand this concept, you see how it is echoing and resonating with similar sorts of concepts at many registers of society, and it gives us a way to, to, to think about what's going on during this period in history as a whole. Uh, so it's not as if the double bind is becoming something bigger. It's echoing and resonating with like ideas. Right, because you mentioned in your book Reinhold Nieberg and Camus and how their ideas were kind of a certain uh, uh, expression of this double bind that they saw in human problems. Can you talk a little about them and how they tie into that? Sure, sure. What I'm, what I'm talking about here is, you know, during World War II, uh, during the mid-century coming out of World War II, uh, there are a a number of ideas that are resonating with each other. I call them impossible dilemmas. Uh, Niebuhr, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr's I, sort of reformulation of original sin as a kind of a paradox. Uh, Albert Camus' idea of the absurd, again, a paradox. Uh, Joseph Heller's Catch-22, which is often sort of used as a way to talk about what the double bind is, a very close connection there. Uh, the more and more the situation that 
uh, society is in, described in metaphors that uh, are mental illness metaphors. This is the age of schizophrenia. We, the modern mind is divided. Uh, society is schizoid. Uh, all of those things are coming together to, to, to uh, as, as I see it, a sort of reaction to what appears to be the failure of the kind of modern product, of the modern project, in the aftermath of the, the horrors of the 20th century. Uh, even though the United States emerges triumphant, uh, that, that victory is tainted by the use of the atomic bomb, which again leads to a kind of a paradoxical Cold War where peace is only assured by the two sides of the, uh, each of the two opponents arming themselves uh, with nuclear weapons and making, making the other side believe that they're willing to use them. So it's mad. <laughs> so, yeah, mutually assured destruction, M-A-D. Uh, well, you know, this, this... The international relations take on this mental illness and schizophrenia sort of metaphorical tropes. It's amazing to me uh, with Bateson, he worked in so many disciplines. He touched on so many things, the political, the social, the biological, uh, you know, communication theory, learning theory. It's quite amazing. Yeah. He, <laughs> he was working with so many strands and trying to bring them together and, he he was, but he has to simplify this thing. So he ends up going to the study dolphins. Yes. And okay, let's talk a little about why study dolphins right. and what was a dolphin mystique. And he wasn't even interested in the dolphin mystique. Okay, yeah. that was not why he was studying them. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that that particular observations that he was making. Yeah. Well, it is. You know, he, he does get involved in studying dolphins and dolphins. There's a, there's a mystique surrounding dolphins at that time. Uh, and he does for, for a while work for or within John C. Lilly's uh, institution. And John C. Lilly is the person who is out there writing books and in magazines and, uh, you know, talking about the possibility of communicating with dolphins. Um, Bateson doesn't want to do that. Bateson is wanting to understand how dolphins communicate with each other. Again, he's, he's turned away from the abundance of data that we talked about before. He, he, he wants to look at something that's not human at all. He wants to look at mammals communicating like humans communicate, but in, in a way very, very different than humans to try to to try to close the holes in a general theory of communication. And so he chooses dolphins to, to study. And, and he goes to Hawaii, and he, he, he uh, becomes a part of this uh, Sea Life Institute to, to study dolphins. They build him this oceanarium so that dolphins can live in a, a kind of natural condition and not be in... Um, very confined, confined captivity or as, as confined captivity. And he begins to, to try to study how they communicate with each other. Right. And all this, he's, 
all this is getting is, is basically helping him formulate a clearer understanding of the double bind theory in communications, in social groups, in in society. And then it, this has a this has a uh, a pol- ends up having a political significance or importance, right? Uh, you talk, you talk in your book about the political debates that were going on at the time between uh, how does you know change happen in society? Is it is it culturalist view or the structuralist view? Is it changing structures or is it changing the way people think? Okay, the, an internal sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about those and what the political implications of that was in terms of now we're getting up to uh, the new left, the counterculture, and sure. all those things. Right. And two different approaches to how we bring about change. Right. Um, there, there's such a, a, a sensitivity to the need for change, of course, that's arising in the 60s, uh, um, especially after the Vietnam War gets started. That kind of gives it a focus. Uh, and, you know, people are desiring change. They're sensitive to the need to change. And ideas about how to bring change about are coming to the fore and uh, they're kind of uh, the old conflict begins to arise between uh, to answer the question how do you affect change is it something that you have to do to your consciousness or is it better to uh, Bring change, try to change existing institutions outside the self, internal or external. Now, that's very schematic, and, uh, you know, this was, these are just abstractions that people talked about. Uh, but they, they did see, you know, there, there were two sides to this issue that played out in, in, in many ways. And uh, activists in the 60s began to see themselves as, you know, there were the politicals, and there were the culturals, there were the militants, and then there were the acid heads, you know. Um, there's really a lot of blurring in reality between the two groups, but when human beings talk about things, they have to put them in schemes. And so these are the, these are the, this is the language they used, and, and as we get into the, into 1967, uh, the two sides begin to sort of pair off and there, there, there begins to be a kind of argument between, um, you know, which is the best method of, of affecting change and um, the militants begin to get the upper hand. Uh, and and I think, you're talking about, here you're, you're, you're actually having some names associated with these kind of ideas. So Stokely Carmichael, Emmett Gorgon of the Diggers, San Francisco, you do bring a bunch of people in mm-hmm. that represent these sorts of ideas. Right. So they all kind of gather. There's this gathering called yes. the Congress of Dialectic Liberation in 1967. Yes. And Basin goes to this, yeah. which is a political, really a political sort of uh, strategy meeting, I guess is what I would call it. That's what it sounds like. They're trying to figure out how are we going to change society. I don't think it really started that way, but things are happening so fast in this period. I mean... Uh, this, this, of course, the the '60s are such such a time of of uh, great change happening week by week. It seems like, and um, in London, 
R.D. Lang is, he's known as a kind of anti-psychiatrist. He's got a lot of the same ideas that, that uh, Bateson's group had come up with in terms of how to deal with mental illness. Uh, Bateson, Bateson's work has, has been influential on him, but he's also been very influential in talking about uh, mental illness. And he wants to put to, and he's become famous with a, with a couple of books, uh, one called The Divided Mind, and he, he brings one out in 1967 called, I'm, I'm blanking on it, but it's, it's really au courant with, with psychedelia. And uh, so he and his group put, start planning this gathering called the Congress uh, on the Dialectics of Liberation. It's going to meet in the summer in July of 1967 in London. And R.D. Lang invites all of the people who have been influential on his thinking, and that includes uh, Gregory Bateson. And it's going to be this talk about R.D. Lang's ideas and bringing together all of his, all of his influences. But as, as events change, uh, this, this Congress takes on a life of its own, and it becomes a site where the argument over where change takes place uh, happens, and nobody's really controlling it. It just it just turns out that way. And in the last few weeks before they have it, they invite Stokely Carmichael there because they feel like they need to have a a, a, a political activist speaking there. And so he comes, and he he really takes the role of the the militant side, um, and and it becomes. A place where, as, as one of the participants put it, uh, uh, the, uh, the militant left meets the mind blowers. Okay, now uh, the other person that was really interesting was Emmett Gorgon. Grogan. Grogan. Emmett Grogan. Yes, uh, talk about his ideas, which is kind of the opposite of Carmichael. Well, I, you, you know, I use Grogan as. If you've got Stokely Carmichael at one side arguing that, you know, we've got to join the fight here. We have to join the fight. Uh, uh, we've got to think about bringing power against existing institutions for our freedom. We've got to claim our, uh, we've got to claim our freedom uh, by any means necessary. Um, he's emerged from the, um, from the civil rights movement as a voice of increasing Militancy, of course, with black power. So he's sort of represented, representing the external side of change. Lang, internal side of change. Uh, he's thinking about consciousness. Uh, he, he's uh, promoting, you know, taking a kind of trip into the interior, the trip of the hero, uh, to try to learn uh, in a kind of mythic quest into the psychic interior to, uh, to learn something that can help mankind in general. He's representing the culturalist side. Emmett Grogan, he's one of the diggers in San Francisco. I use him as a kind of in-between figure. He's just trying to pick up on whatever's happening, and he's trying to, you know, be a figure in the movement. And, uh, you know, he's not a real... Uh, you know, I wouldn't call him a 
intellectual like the other two. He's more of an activist and a figure, a kind of a, a leader. And he's using whatever is necessary to advance the agenda as he sees it. And he's drawing on both sides. And he winds up there, too, at, at the Congress on the Dialectics of Liberation. Don't you wish he had been there? I mean, it was yeah, amazing. It amazing. It's it amazing. amazing. I mean, yeah. the, the group was amazing. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Okay, so here's Bateson, and he's kind of first up. Yes. He's, he, he to comes. address this audience. Yes. Mm-hmm. And what does he say to them, and what's the effect of what he says? Well, he talks about, uh, he talks about seeing uh, the problems in a, what I would call ecological or environmental or relational way. And when you talk about ecological in your book, you're not just talking about nature and humanity's uh, connection to nature, but also ecology of just society, the ecology of the world in a bigger sense, right? It includes everything. Right. The ecology of ideas, uh, the ecology of mind is the way that Bateson talks about it. He doesn't make a distinction between culture and nature, really. He's looking for, for a kind of a way to talk about them on a continuum. He's a, he's a holist. You know, back in the 60s, a lot of these terms, you know, hadn't quite been hashed out yet. Uh, but to me, he's representative of, uh, uh, of a new ecological imaginary, a new way to think about a reality that, that, um, I think a lot of us understand, um, and what I was responding to in my twenties when I when I read his book. Um, yeah, it's, it's looking at reality, you know, just in the, little, in the parts, isolated parts that are kind of bumping into each other, but mm-hmm. looking at them as part of a, a, a web of communication, a web of meaning. Yes, yeah, a web of meaning uh, is the way is one of the sort of metaphors I think that we have now to 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 think about this ecological imaginary. And so he, he's talking about problems from that perspective, from the system as a whole. And it includes these people who are at this conference. Yeah. They can't, like, be against, over against something. They're part of it. Yes, yes. They're embedded in this thing. Right, right. right. He, he's really trying to advance his ideas for this new orientation to reality. Uh, and he's, he's got this opportunity. He's been asked by Artie Lang to come and speak, and so they didn't know what it was going to turn out. It turns out to be this iconic 60s event. Uh, uh, lots of people are there. There's a great deal of interest. Uh, a lot of the people who are the you know purported leadership of the of the insurgent movement of youth are there. Uh, we've mentioned some of them. Uh, Allen Ginsberg is there. Uh, William Burroughs is there. Uh, a host of other people. And he's and and Bateson wants to talk about what's important to them in a way that conveys his desire. To bring to make information central to the way we talk about the living world, and it's a way that we would, we would think of as ecological now. And so he's he's going to talk about those problems. 
And what we see, you know, I've got the transcript to his thought, uh, to, to his talk, uh, and I've got the transcript to the, the people who stood up and asked him questions afterwards. And, and this, the situation we've been talking about, this standoff, uh, this confrontation between different ways to affect change, comes out and is dramatized in the question and answer session, session following Bateson's talk. And somebody says, you know, I mean, we hear what you're saying about the system uh, needing to be adjusted, but we just don't have that kind of time. We have to think about people who are suffering today and who are oppressed, and we have to you know, get on their side because they're fighting for their lives right now in Vietnam and in the cities in the United States. Uh, you know, there, there are there's racial unrest, riots going on. We have to, we have to think about that. We don't have the luxury to think about the system as a whole. And in fact, we suspect that that's a kind of a cop out. Yeah, because it's, yeah, it feels like you would be paralyzed by that vision. Okay, it's so big, it's so complex. There's so many moving parts that are affecting each other that there's no way we can do this. So we might as well just. Go after something we can see that's tangible right before us, sure. right? Maybe that's maybe that is the proper uh, arena of action for human beings: social action, so uh, action for social groups. Choose a side and defend and fight for that side. Bateson is speaking in a more systemic way. He's ther- very theoretical. Uh, very theoretical, and like in all, you know, this is a inherent problem in thinking ecologically. Do human individuals sort of sink into the system? Is When we think in terms of maybe the human species instead of human individuals, does every individual then become equal to every other? No. And so do we lose the hierarchies that we're fighting about in the social world? You know what I'm saying? It's a way to, it becomes a way to kind of evade uh, the ongoing conflict between the weak and the strong, uh, you know, the oppressors and the oppressed. And so ecological thinking seems to some people, especially the ones who are, you know, really ready to fight as a kind of a cop-out uh, that elite people, the status quo, can use to evade the issue. Yes, yeah, quietism, basically, what quietism. they're saying. Yeah, this is a this is going to be a mode of quietism, um, and so he they say, yeah, we hear what you're saying. Um, sure, the system is broken, uh, but we don't have the the luxury to think about that right now because there are people who are fighting for their lives, and we need to, you know, we need to help them out and join a side. And and so Bateson says, well, I agree with you. I agree with you. But um, I would just object to that word luxury uh, because, you know, we can't not think about what's going on systemically either. Um, and and, then, also and then he talks about, you know, then he talks about the greenhouse effect. And it, it reminds me of the law of unintended consequences. I don't know why. It's, it's like he's saying, yes, you can go out and do all this stuff, action and mm-hmm. But how do you know 
that what you're doing is going to give you the outcome that you're looking for. Well, that is, that is the problem with, with human agency. That's the ancient problem with human agency. We do have the, you know, we do have the ability to take action and to put into the world a new stream of events, right? But we can't have any say over what's, you know, what the consequences of that action are. We, we don't really have a, uh, a possibility of knowing what the outcome will be to the actions that we begin. Now, he talks about the original sin of being, the sin of consciousness, conscious purpose. Okay, he doesn't use the phrase original sin. No, he doesn't. But he, he doesn't he retell, he retells the story of the Garden of Eden. Right. And then he names what he thinks was the, 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 right. weak, the, the weak point. We would call it the original sin. The, what mm-hmm. was the thing that humanity did at that point that kind of got us on this track? Well, he is basically saying uh, that we're part of a system. And we only, you know, we, our consciousness is only aware of a particular segment of that system. And so when we take actions for, uh, for our own purposes, um, then we are acting in error in some sense. We're introducing into the system an error in some sense. Uh, because we don't know what the how the system works as a whole, and we can't know. Now, when that happens on a person-to-person level, the system is flexible enough to absorb those errors. But when it happens at levels of scale, which it has been since you know the Industrial Revolution, the uh, the human collective has been, at least the industrial West, has been acting more and more at levels of scale, then the system has, you know, the system's response to those errors is going to be much greater and puts the system as a whole in danger of um, going into uh, an imbalance and having to, uh, having to adjust. And now this is the title of your book, yeah, The going Runaway. Into a, going into a, a, a runaway situation where, you know, it may disintegrate or it may find a new, uh, a new range. Um, and as I said, the, the greenhouse effect, this is, he's talking about what we call today climate change. I think this is the first instance where climate change, or where climate change is discussed before a lay audience right in the midst of this argument about how to affect change. Socially. You know, socially. Um, and, and today we talk about runaway climate change. Um, and, uh, you know, the double bind. Then it, it, it's now a term that, that is in our discourse about environmental crisis and ecological crisis. The double bind is like a, another, another term we use is a wicked dilemma. One of those problems that seems to refute common sense solutions. We perceive a problem, we react to that problem in the way that we make sense. Make, make sense to us, and what happens? The problem gets worse. That that's the double bind. 
I always think about something like recycling. You know, we recycle our materials because we think, okay, this is good. We're recovering it. But then you've got to use energy to break them back down again and to right. produce something new, right? Right. So mm-hmm. in the equation of that, yeah. are we better off recycling or not? Right. We don't really know yet, That's I don't hard. think. Yeah, right. So people who think about the ecological crisis, people who think about climate change use this term wicked dilemma today. And um, sometimes they use the term double bind or triple bind. I've heard some use. They're talking about that. Okay. So let me ask you about uh, generally what was the reception of, of him, his ideas, his double bind theory and how he applied it to social problems and applied it to the ecological, as we think ecological problems are, uh, at that conference. Uh, he, he was the first one there. So then... Did they forget about it the rest of the conference, or, or was, did his speech or his lecture continue to kind of create conversations at that conference? It had a big effect on, on people at that conference. Okay. Uh, the person that I talk about it having a big effect on, because there's, there's real evidence of it, is Allen Ginsberg. Um, he was very affected by it. Um, and, uh, you know, years later, when he was asked in an interview, what was the spirit of the summer of love? What was the spirit of 1967? What can you put your hand? What can you put your finger on as the big uh, enduring change of that time? And uh, Allen Ginsberg says, "Well, Gregory Bateson introduced to us, to me, um, the possibility of uh, of a runaway. What we've been talking about uh, of apocalypse, not from." a bomb, uh, a nuclear war in an instant, but as a, but by slowly poisoning the atmosphere, because we're only doing what we think we need to be doing to advance our agenda. Not because there's any malicious or aggressive intent. We're just doing what we're supposed to be doing. And the result is a slow poisoning of the atmosphere and the world could end that way too. And that has a huge effect on uh, Allen Ginsberg's way of thinking. And I think it, it, it's representative of the emerging concern about the environment that we see in this time. It's hard for us to, you know, this is a book of history and, and um, you know, we're trying to understand how things start and that, that seem uh, common sense, common to, us, sense yeah. to us now, right? And that's what I'm trying to tease out of this uh, event, it being representative of an experience that many of us have have since had, this reckoning with what the environmental consequences are uh, in a world of that is not um, a Newtonian world, but a world of a, uh, that, that's a web of meaning where all of our actions have consequences that come back and affect us in turn. That's the new accounting for reality that I associate with the ecological imaginary. And I, and I, re- I see that as the foremost intellectual experience of, of our time. Mm. You know, we're still reckoning with it. And uh, there are big, there are, Big segments of the 
population who are in despair over it, who are paralyzed by it. There are big sections of the population who are uh, in denial of it. And these are all responses to the same thing, I think, trying to reckon with this. And it's difficult to, it's such a, a difficult problem that it won't hold our gaze. And, uh, so I'm trying to tell a story about it so we can, you know, find a way to kind well, you of... Told, you, to, you told a very good story. I want to ask you now, really, what happened to Bateson that he got lost in all this? I mean, how come... What what it took so long for to people to notice? Or you noticed him, but, you know, and other people will now notice mm-hmm. him because you wrote this book. But is it because he was so theoretical that we just don't... Uh, pay attention to theoretical people or he didn't really do anything. He didn't build an institution. He didn't start a movement. That's right. That's part of it. You know, we're, we're so attracted to uh, visionaries. They actually go out and do something. Bateson may get his due someday. He was ahead of his time, but he's part of something that's so big that no individual person is really all that important to it. I mean, there, this change that I'm talking about, this, this, move, this move towards a new way to account for reality uh, that, is, that has to be done because of the information that we're taking in. Uh, the information that we're taking in is is telling us that there has to be a change to the way we think about things because the contradictions are just too great. And this is happening in all disciplines. It's happening at all registers. And Bateson is just one person. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying he's the one who no, showed us the yes. way. Right. And so it's, it's not all that important that we know who he is. He just becomes a way to, for us to... to, to one one look at the story, one way to look at, at, at what's going on here. Now, a lot of people haven't heard of them, but there are, you know, if you look across the disciplines, uh, science, um, the humanities, you will find lots of people who have been influenced by Bateson and know who he is. Just because the mainstream may not be all that familiar with him doesn't mean that he hasn't And he seems, had a, he seems to be describing our, our current political situation yeah. very well. Um, it's like, yes, even our legislator and our Congress, everybody's kind of trapped and they don't know how to move because whatever, if they move this way, this happens. If they move that way, you know, it's just... Yeah, we seem to be sort of stuck in an oscillation of, of uh, a conflict that seems to be a, well, I'll just put it this way, we seem to be paralyzed in an argument. So where, do you, where, do you, where do you think that your hope uh, or think that your, your book will be useful? Who would this be useful to? Who can who can use this book as a springboard for other things? Well, you're asking me what is the utility or the application? Uh, yes, I know that's kind of a contradictory <laughs> question to what we've just been talking. But and, and I'm and I and I really resist seeing it that yeah. way. Uh-huh. Um, I I I have in writing this book. You know, definitely, I think it's an important topic. I think it's the most important topic. Definitely passionate about the, this idea. It's very interesting to me. I think that it's what people should be thinking about. I think it's what they, 
they are thinking about when they let themselves. So I think it's a, it's a story for anybody, but by, by writing it, I'm not really trying to make something happen. I'm trying to uh, create a good reading experience. That's my contribution, and, and, and that, was, that was my ambition for the book. Well, thank you, Anthony, for your time today. Uh, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to a special Society for U.S. Intellectual History edition of New Books in American Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger. <laughs>